0: My guest today is an old friend and a first-time novelist, Michael Huey, whose spy thriller Spitfire was just published. Michael, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio.
1: Thank you so much, Charlie.
0: So full disclosure for our listeners here, Michael and I have known each other I think 20 years probably, ever a since while. my wife Janice and you were in a play together. <laughs> uh, and in those years I've known you as an actor, as a playwright, as an arts executive, as a teacher, as a journalist. You actually wrote a story about me one time for a local magazine, um, and as a dad. What, what binds together all those different passions for you?
1: Um, ah, well, sure. As a dad, I, I would say um, creativity, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the the urge to create, because God knows, as a parent, you have to be creative constantly. <laughs> um, yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't say I'm a playwright, though. I I wrote plays for me to perform. Uh-huh. Um, so uh, I, you know, I don't want to give myself that label
0: well let's talk about that a little bit because you you wrote i know at least two of them um jack and three hats uh which were which were plays as you said that you wrote to um one one person plays that you wrote to perform yourself tell us a little bit about that that writing process of you know i've had the experience of writing a play for multiple characters but what's it like to to create uh, a piece like that that's designed for a single actor and designed for yourself, too. Is yeah. that different from if you were writing for somebody else?
1: Well, um, yeah, I wrote to my strengths. Mm-hmm. Uh, I kind of felt, you know, I was looking for a topic. This was, my son was nine months old uh, when we rehearsed it. And mm-hmm. uh, that summer, I spent uh, most of the summer sitting on our porch, uh, often with him in my arms reading a book about Jack the Ripper. Uh, the play was called Jack and yeah. about, uh, The Ripper. Um, so, uh, so that was what it was. Uh, uh, my wife, who is uh, the director, Brooke, she um, shaped the show in a big way. So, uh, I wouldn't say it was all me. Uh, but when I was writing it, I was definitely thinking, okay, I got to write something that I can do well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and so it, it it seemed to work out.
0: Yeah, I mean it's a great show. And then Three Hats came after that.
1: Yes, it did. Uh, which is totally different. It's about Charlie Chaplin, uh, Buster Keaton, and. The largely forgotten, the largely Earl forgotten, Lloyd, uh, which is what I call him in the show, uh, and it was, um, as you can imagine, totally silent. Uh, there was a the uh, concept of sort of a, a slideshow that these the, the, the Chaplin, Keaton, and Lloyd's characters were responding to, mm-hmm. um, and then I wrote another play about Harry Houdini, which was a, a two-hander. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think,
0: I think you get to call yourself a playwright based on on that that work. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I don't know. <laughs> I, I have to I have to tell our listeners now. I can't remember where this is, but but you talk about when you talk about Harold Lloyd, as you said, he, you always refer to him as the largely forgotten Harold Lloyd. It's this kind of running joke. And and that's become a phrase in our family. The largely forgotten <laughs> fill in the blank. And In one of my novels, someplace I used the phrase "largely forgotten," I'm, I'm and so I don't thrilled. I don't remember where. But you know,
1: <laughs> fantastic. I'm sure I think Harold Lloyd would be happy about that as well. Yeah,
0: I mean and he was brilliant. At he least was, we're still talking know. about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So like me, you moved from I'm going to still use the word playwriting from playwriting to novel <laughs> writing. Um, and for me, as fun and, and as rewarding as it was, I found. Playwriting for me was basically a detour on my road to being a novelist. I'd, I'd wanted to be a novelist all along. I, I fell into a situation where I got to do a lot of playwriting, but I still wanted to, to, to write novels and I eventually got back to that point. When and why did you decide you wanted to write something that was a longer piece of prose fiction?
1: Yeah, um, I took a short story course online and had a, an instructor that I, I loved. And wrote a short story that I thought was pretty good, and she encouraged me to expand it. And so I did for this thing called the Three-Day Novel Writing Contest. <laughs> have you ever heard of this? No. Yeah. Uh, I think it's from out of Canada, and you have to write a novel over the course of Labor Day weekend. Oh you start Friday at midnight, oh, and you have to stop, and it's the honor system, obviously, uh, Sunday at midnight. Yeah. Um, and so I took that short story and expanded it into a forty thousand word novel that only my wife has read. <laughs> um, but it was it was a fun experience. And so out of that, I thought, "Oh, I could do this if I had more than three days. I yeah. could really do yeah. this." Um, so you know, it's just that uh, the thing. Same thing happened when I wrote the first play. Is I thought, "Oh, there's no way I could write a play. There's no way." Mm-hmm. And then I thought, "Oh, there's no way I could possibly
0: write something in long form like a novel." And then.
1: You just do you
0: just yeah. sit down and do it It's interesting that you say that because i you know i have i know i'm we are probably not the only two novelists who have this. I have a first quote unquote novel I'm using air quotes for our listeners uh, It was sort of the same thing. I didn't write it in three days, but it was really written just to prove to myself that I could write something that was you know two hundred two or two hundred fifty pages long right um, and, and I think sometimes that's an important first step and And it's sometimes also important to leave that in a drawer where nobody will ever see it. I know in my case, that's true. I have two (laughs) in a drawer. Uh, (laughs) So So another thing we have in common is we didn't publish our first novels in our 20s straight out of graduate school. Um, For us and for many other writers, the road to publication is a long one. It requires not only talent and hard work, but a thick skin. And above all, it requires patience. Tell us a little bit about your journey between that Labor Day weekend and signing your contract for Spitfire.
1: Oh, wow. Um, well, there was 12 years between those. Um, I, that's, that's actually, 10 years. It was 10 years. Um, so I wrote those two. I started um, Spitfire in, I think, 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote part of it for NaNoWriMo um, in November. Yeah. Uh, I had an acting job. I was in Christmas Carol. Had to go away. I'd read about, I wrote about 25,000 words. Came back to it the following year and read it and went, oh, okay, that's not bad. And I finished it. And, um, you know, I've been through two agents um, and probably 40 editors maybe turned it down before it found a home. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was a long time. Um, And for the longest time when I was writing, I never dreamed that I would get really to this, even to the submission phase. Yeah. I thought this was something I was just sort of doing for fun, or I'd have to do it a long, long, long time to really get good enough that I would send it to someone. Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I have a neighbor in England who refers to me as the man who took 20 years to become an overnight success. <laughs> but, I, but I think that, um, you know, that sort of reveals something about this business is that you, you do have to be patient, and you do have to be willing to to just let those rejections come in and slide off your back and get on with with your job which is you know to write write a good story yeah um as as you our listeners are listening to the podcast um michael's book has just been published it's published about a week ago but we're actually recording this podcast back in december when he still has two or three weeks to wait until that exciting day um we both live and write uh in winston-salem how do you find this city as a community for writers
1: uh well you know with bookmarks I mean it's, mm-hmm. it's a whole new ball game now with yeah. you know the the foundation I mean and and the store um so that's wonderful I mean Winston Salem is a really good place to do just about anything um you know uh, and even though it is a middle-sized city in the south there are people from everywhere here I mean one of my yeah. sources for this is a French veteran of World War II yeah. who um, is, a, is about to turn 99 in February. So um, uh, it, it's it's a great place really to do to do anything, and, and there's a very supportive community of writers. Yourself obviously, and I know two or three other folks as
0: well. Yeah, it's amazed me how. Um they this, when 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 bookmarks started to sort of gain momentum and especially with the store like all of a sudden these writers started coming out of the woodwork i'm like I, I didn't realize that i had a you know children's book illustrator who lives a mile from me or this person who's written all this you know different kinds of books and um you're going to be at the bookmarks movable feast in in february yeah, uh, Yeah. You know, tell us about about that event and and are you excited are you Nervous, how how do you see that playing out? I'm extremely
1: excited, and you were kind enough to invite me last year, so I got to experience it from the other side, right? right. Uh, which was invaluable. Um, no, I'm thrilled about it. It's kind of like speed dating for authors, yeah. Uh, you pop around other tables and and you know uh, have a a spiel. So I'm sure uh, in February I will be (laughs) rehearsing the five minute sort of you know spitfire pitch. Uh, that I'll give to people. I, I, I'm really excited about it.
0: Good. Well, let's talk about Spitfire a little bit. Spitfire is a spy novel, um, and while the story has its roots in World War II and the French Resistance, the, the main part of the story is set just after the war. What, why did you choose that time period to set the novel? Um, when I started thinking about writing about one of these women
1: uh, in the SOE or, um, who were basically amateurs who were trained to be spies... Um, and I'm just going to throw in a pitch for a book here that everyone should read, <laughs> Codename Verity by Elizabeth Wien, mm-hmm. which is absolutely the inspiration for me to go down this road. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a great book. Anyway, um, at the same time that I was thinking about this, I went through, the, for the first time in my life, a period of unemployment. Mm-hmm. And you feel feel awful and your self-worth just goes downhill. This is five months. I mean, there's nothing compared yeah. to some people. Yeah. And I thought, what about if someone came home, uh, one of these women came home after doing this incredibly dangerous work for their country and then were just told, hey, go back and do your menial job or raise the kids or be a good wife and what if one of these women really wanted to continue that? Um, about the same time, I rewatched the great movie The Third Man. Oh, yeah. And I thought... Boom! That's it. the the the, the vibe of the post war, you know. In, in the war, it's pretty clear who the bad guys are and who the good guys yeah. are. But yeah. when in 1946, everything starts to change a little bit as we're kind of approaching the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I thought that was just a perfect time. To, uh, to set it. And 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 there are, as you may have noticed, there are one or two other novels about the World War II era out there. I've,
0: I've heard that other people have, <laughs> have written about that, yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, if you go to Barnes and Noble, there's like an entire shelf. Um, I've gotten to know some of the people who have written those novels. And um, so uh, just, you know, post-war is something a little bit different Yeah. Uh, and a little bit different um, um, sort of atmosphere i guess
0: one of the things i found fascinating about this novel and you kind of touched on it is this this sense of we've gone from a very black and white these are the bad guys and these are the good guys to a very gray area where you've got these sort of shifting alliances and you're not quite sure if somebody is on your side from one day to the next even do you see that that sort of landscape as being echoed I mean, my first question, I guess, is being echoed at the end of the Cold War, because you're at the beginning. But even in the in the international geopolitical landscape of today, uh...
1: <laughs> um, when I started writing this book, um, I wanted. I, I thought this is a time when the Russians were still our allies. I mean, we were allies during the war. Right. Of course, I'm sure people were thinking, you know, this is the once we finish with Hitler then we're moving on to these folks uh, and to world communism. Um, That has changed over the last few years uh, in my mind. Mm -hmm. Obviously now we we sort of, you know, depending on uh, which side of the table you're on, you sort of still see uh, Russia as questionable. Um, But I very much wanted to depict a time after the war when um, allies were looking at each other Skeptically, yeah, uh, yeah, wondering, you know, what, what what do you want, you know, and how do our are we still on the same team, right? Uh, if right. that if that makes sense. And at the end of the Cold War, I think I, I think it, we were almost back to the sort of good guy bad guy sort of thing. At yeah. least that's how it's depicted. Yeah, by often then. In the yeah, world.
0: I mean, you know, for 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 me growing up in the in the seventies and into the early eighties, yeah, it was it was still very. It was during the Cold War. It was very black and white, yeah. you know. Uh, but I think that you caught, you've captured that transition period really nicely. Let's talk about your heroine, Livy Nash. T- tell us a little bit about her.
1: Uh, well, Livy is um, she's British. Uh, she's working class girl from Blackpool, which is in Lancashire. Uh, if you've never been to Blackpool, it is um, it has seen its better days. Yeah. Uh, but it is a seaside resort in the northwest of England. Um, and uh, so Libby's from there. She has a French mother uh, because most of these women uh, from the SOE um, who were chosen were chosen for language skills. Mm-hmm. Most of them, often, they had parents or one parent who was, um, you know, French or, or Polish, depending on where the mm-hmm. they, the British wanted to send them. Uh, she's direct. Uh, yeah. She has um, what I believe the stereotype is uh, Lancashire sass mm-hmm. um, and um, at the beginning of the novel, she's, she's going through a hard time. She's, um, she's pretty damaged. She's uh, drinking a lot to forget all of her problems and she's got a lot of them.
0: Yeah, yeah. So even though you didn't describe yourself as a playwright... I came to see a play that you wrote recently (laughs) that was based on the diary of a young woman who was in the French Resistance during World War II. Can you talk about how that diary and the experience of working with that, um, and you sort of alluded to this a little bit, um, provided some of the background for Spitfire?
1: Um, Well, I'd written Spitfire and had multiple drafts long before that ever came into Mm -hmm. my life. Oh, yeah. Um, But um, through meeting um, this uh, French World War II veteran, André Rocher, Um, his wife, as you mentioned, who who passed away several years ago, was a member of the French Resistance Mm -hmm. in Bordeaux. And so um, the play that I wrote was based on her journal, a journal that she kept of day-to-day activities. But in terms of the book... You know, when I was doing uh, rewrites or copy edits, and I was confused about something, I would literally email or call Andre and say, "Andre, 1946, where did you guys use phones when you're on the street? Were yeah. they pay phones?" Yeah. Um, uh, Andre has a copy of it right now and is reading it, which makes me very nervous. <laughs> uh, but he's an incredible resource. Yeah, um, you That's know, fantastic he's someone to... who was who was there. Yeah. I can say what was Paris like then.
0: Yeah. And he was there. So that's fantastic. that's that's a fantastic thing to have. I mean, I know from from having written historical novels, and especially in in the not too distant past, you know, it's almost easier to write a historical novel that's set in you know fourteen fifty than it is to write one as I just did, set in nineteen oh six, or as you just did, set in in nineteen forty six, where he's say, trying to find out these little details of how did you get from one place to another, or, you know, where was the telegraph office, and things like right, that. Right, um, Let's talk about process just for a minute. This book is a thriller, and, and thrillers have twists and turns in them. I, I know, I just got done writing one. But what, first of all, what came for you first? Did you start out with, with the story, with the character, with the setting? And did you map those twists and turns out ahead of time, or did you sort of discover them as you, as you worked?
1: Um, when I started, the two things I had were was Louis's character
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and Ian Fleming. Uh, Ian Fleming is a uh, the man who wrote James Bond uh, is is a character in it as well. Um, and the way I usually work is I outline about half, and then I like to surprise myself. Yeah, um, there are some twists, plot twists here, um, and um, they came to me as I was writing, quite frankly, Mm -hmm. Um, in this one. Uh, I'm working on the second Liddy book right now, and that was a a little bit different. But, you know, I I like to surprise myself and and get to a point where I go, I don't really know where I should go right now. What makes the most sense? Um, um, But, yeah, I mean, certainly there is a... A couple of major things that happened that I did not know for a while that I,
0: that was where I was going. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of like to write a protagonist into a, an impossible situation and then sit back and go, okay, how am I going to get her out of this? Yes. You know, or how is she going to get out of this? Yes. Um, so you mentioned Ian Fleming. Yes. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Ian Fleming wrote a little book called Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, but <laughs> is also somewhat known for uh, a series of spy novels starring a guy named James Bond. Yeah, um, but, but tell us about the real Fleming and, and how you incorporated the, the, him not as a, as a character, but as you know, doing his actual job in, yes. into your novel.
1: Yes. Um, well, another plug... Uh, as far as I'm concerned, the gold standard for uh, espionage nonfiction, Ben McIntyre. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, anyway, uh, he wrote um, about Fleming in a book, and Fleming, uh, after the war, Fleming was involved in naval intelligence during the war. He was a planner. He did not go in the field. He was not Bond. Uh, maybe in his fantasy he was, but he was not. Um, but after the war, he went back to journalism and started running foreign correspondence for the, among other papers, the Sunday Times. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, I read that in his office, which this is in the book, there is a map of the world and he had little um, electric lights in the cities where his correspondents were. Mm-hmm. And I thought, my God, he's M.
0: Yeah, you know? yeah.
1: Um, so um, I really, I've read, Fleming has been a, a character in several novels that I've read. Yeah. And I have never really liked the way he was portrayed, because he's usually portrayed as a surrogate bond. Yeah. And I also don't think necessarily that Fleming was uh, a, um, a warm and lovely man to be around at all times. Mm-hmm. So um, I wanted to reflect that. And sort of having him recruit this very direct uh, woman, uh, I think, sort of, um, you know, is, a, is an interesting dynamic.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so he becomes sort of her handler, I guess you would you would say. Yeah, yeah. he's
1: her M. Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. yeah. Did you read any of the of the Bond books when you were you know setting out to write a spy thriller? I uh, no, Or had I or had you read them in the past? Or? Yeah, yeah. I yeah. was.
1: I've yeah. been a fan for a long time, and this yeah. this book is kind of. Um, I mean, on the one hand, I think Fleming was is a, an extraordinary thriller writer, with the best still the best titles. And yeah, thriller. Yeah, yeah. Uh, at all times. Uh, at the same time, you know, when you read the books now, I mean, they're filled with, you know, racism, homophobia, yeah. misogyny. Yeah. Sure. So, the book sort of balances that. I mean, I'm a, sort of an homage to him as a thriller writer, but also, now he's dealing with this woman, a very direct woman, yeah. and yeah. she is the hero. Right. So, yeah. Um, so yeah. So, so yeah, I've read them all. Yeah. <laughs> two or three times. I have to admit.
0: Yeah. They're. There are two really two stories in Spitfire, one of them we've been talking a little bit about I mean we're not going to give away plot here at all, but um and that's what's happening in in nineteen forty six with with Livy sort of having come back from the war and figuring out what's going to happen next in her life. But the other is what happened to her during the war? Yes, and she was as you said, with the s o e which is special operations executive, is yes. that correct which yes, was the absolutely. which was sort of the British secret service um uh, during the war um did you find that her the story of what happened after the war grew out of the experiences you gave her in the war, or did you or did you work the other way? Did you start out with front story or with or with backstory?
1: Hmm. Um I guess I started out with the uh, the backstory. Mm-hmm. Um because the backstory really informs the entire novel. Yeah. yeah. Um uh, it's incorporated in the book now a little bit differently than I had it originally, but um, you know, it's a it's a huge part. I mean, uh, I would say one of the themes of this is trying to be able to let go of the past. Which, I mean, I've never I'm not a veteran. I don't know what it's like to have been in a, a major conflict like this, but I would imagine, uh, especially going through what Libby went through, it would be extremely difficult. Um, so, uh, so the, her memories of the war um, are vastly important.
0: Yeah, know. yeah, and I think sort of she has she has. Uh, it might be fair to say that she has trust issues, yes. based on having a <laughs> worked in a, worked in a business, you know, during the war where you had no idea who to trust. You didn't know who was a double or a triple agent or right. not an agent at all. You know, right. so that that I think yeah it gives her, um, it gives her sort of some some levels of complexity, um, and that leads me to to perhaps a slightly bigger question, which is, um, as you're interweaving these two timelines, how do you decide when to reveal and not reveal? information to the reader. And I asked Robin Cook this the other day, uh, and he said, well, I rely on instinct. And I thought, well, yeah, you've been doing it for 40 years, so you can certainly rely on instinct, but, um, but you and I haven't been doing this for 40 years. Right. So, so how, do, how do you make that decision about, like, in, in what order and, and at what speed to sort of meet out information to the reader so that they don't know too much too soon? That's a really good question. Um,
1: I guess I would answer it two ways. I mean, I think part of it is instinct. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. any writer is, reads a lot. And I have read, God knows, a lot of spy novels. Yeah. And you just sort of get a feeling for what you like when you read other authors. Uh, plus, I have a great editor, <laughs> and she kept writing. Well, if she knows this, why aren't you telling us? Um, and so she sort of challenged me at times, to, in a good way, to really think about what I wanted to reveal and when I wanted to reveal it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then you sort of also have to work sort of backwards to see, well, why would these people be keeping this sort of thing a secret? What What's the benefit for them? You have to make it sort of realistic, um, which is hard because, I mean, I don't know about you, When I write, the characters are what interest me the most. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then someone, you know, your editor says, but this plot line doesn't really make any sense.
0: Right, right. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I find, too, to me, some of it has to do with pacing, uh, where, with, and I think this, I found this especially true in writing a thriller, is that you want to kind of go back and forth between these intense scenes of conflict or danger, or, you know, even if it's not necessarily physical danger, but sometimes it is, and then, you know, sort of backing away and slowing it down a little bit and having having a little bit of breathing space. Um, did, did you find that, that, that you needed to kind of intersperse those kinds of scenes,
1: yes, yeah, yeah. i mean I, I i probably maybe I have one too many uh, scenes where the spies are sitting around talking, uh, <laughs> but I was really aware, I think it's Raymond Chandler's advice that you know uh about every ten pages or so you need to bring if or if if it's going slowly, bring in somebody with a gun <laughs> right, right um so i I may have actually done that once. <laughs> I think it's about the middle of the novel I went, I think somebody needs to have a gun right now. It's going to, you know, up the stakes a little bit. Well, and and
0: well, I think, you know, it can be overdone to a certain extent. I mean, I, I the novel I have come out later on this year is sort of inspired by the the children's series adventure books of the of the early 20th century. And one of the rules that Edward Stratemeyer, who created all these books had was like, you know, every 3 chapters you have to, the the hero has to be in mortal peril. And the chapters are only about eight pages long, you know, so uh, it, it can be overdone suddenly. Um, you you have experienced and no doubt will experience um, what I see as kind of the double-edged sword of writing a book that fits conveniently into a genre, in your case, the espionage thriller. On the one hand, this is exactly what publishers want. It's what the public wants. They want to be able to say, this book is this. But on the other hand, it inevitably invites comparison to all the other books that are This. Yes. Um, How do you feel that Spitfire is is different from other espionage thrillers that are out there? Oh wow. Um,
1: I think uh, Livy's character is is a bit different. Mm -hmm. There are, as we said, there are many, many, many World War II novels, many centered around female protagonists. I certainly have not read them all, but Livy to me feels a bit uh, different because she's working class. uh, She is. you know, she doesn't necessarily fit the mold of what I think a lot of people would go, oh, that's what a woman in 1946 would necessarily behave, right. how, she, how they would behave. But then I believe that every woman in 1946 did not fit that mold sure. either. There, I mean, there are always people who are you know, different or who you know, um, walk to the beat of their own drummer. Um, so I think that, hopefully that, um, uh, is, is, is the big thing. Um, that sort of maybe sets it apart. And I think maybe just, you know, putting it after the war. I, I just finished writing, it should be out by the time this airs, uh, an article for Crime Reads, the, mm-hmm. the website, yeah. uh, about post-war thrillers yeah. uh, and how they are different from, you know, World War II thrillers mm-hmm. and even, even the thrillers that came, you know, say, after the Cuban Missile Crisis in the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they're a little more noir,
0: Well, I was gonna say, I mean you you immediately think the third man and you also immediately think of these sort of devastated cities and people sort of walking around Rubble and bomb sites and things like that. So it does give it a very noir feel I think. Yes. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah Um, Well, by this time point in the interview, it's probably not a great secret to our listeners that um, you are a man um, but like me, as I've done in, in at least one of my novels, you have written um, a female heroine. And in, and in this case, your publisher actually did not want to have the name Michael on the cover of the book. So the book is written by M.L. Huey, yes. for those of you who are going to the bookstore and trying to find the book. Um, talk to us a little bit. First of all, talk about the process of writing a, across gender. What, what was that like for you?
1: Um. Well, when I first considered that, I thought to myself, well, you know, um, we're all people. Yeah. I'm yeah? Yeah. Um, um, married to a woman, uh, Brooke, who is a, a director, a theater director, and very smart. Uh, and I knew that whatever I wrote, I would hand to her and she would say, no, yeah.
0: women don't do that. <laughs> yes. Women don't think that. I'm um, also married to a woman who is a theater director and very smart and reads my novel. So I, I gotcha. <laughs> it
1: helps. It's a good thing. <laughs> yes,
0: it is. Um,
1: my editor uh, is also a, a very smart woman and she did the same. So, um, But, you know, I, um, uh, uh, I've heard authors uh, uh, like Megan Abbott, uh, who's one of my favorite writers, Say you know, I'm not a killer, but I write killers. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so uh, hopefully, you know, Livy is uh, feels honest and, and truthful to to other women. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you know, I mean, I, I don't know that. Um, <laughs> I, mean, I think one of the biggest thing that a man men can do who are writing female characters is not spend so much time describing what they look like. Yeah, uh, And that was something I really intentionally did, is to not go into great detail as to what she looks like. because One thing, I wanted the reader to sort of fill it yeah. in, yeah. Well, uh, feel but also because, you know, in male novels, it's, if, if a woman comes into the scene, we're going to spend half a page describing what she's wearing, what she looks like, everything. You yeah. know? So I didn't want to do that. Yeah.
0: I mean, I found that um, in writing in in my novel First Impressions, writing Sophie Collingwood, who was a twenty-six or seven-year-old heroine, um, that the difficulty I had was not writing a female; it was writing a twenty-six or seven-year-old. You know, that yes. that was a much greater challenge in terms of like putting myself into uh, into those that character's shoes, and you know, how would they think? How would they talk? How would they yes. react? So, the, you know, the the I knew lots of people who are female, but um, at that particular point in my life, I. Wasn't spending a lot of time around people who were British and 26. And so yes. the, those, those were the, the greater challenges. Um, so I'll admit that I am one of those readers, and I hope all of our listeners are readers like this, who I read every single part of the book. I read the acknowledgments, I read the author's note, I read the back of the title page, um, and I read the dedication. Now, you mentioned your wife, Brooke, um, to whom the novel is dedicated. And the dedication goes on to say, for Paris, for everything. And so that means I have to ask you to tell us about Paris.
1: <laughs> oh, sure. Well, when I first conceived this book, like the third man, the second European city it was going to be set in was Vienna. Yeah. Um, the summer while I was had revisited it, um, we decided to go to London and Paris. I never for some reason, please don't judge me folks, never wanted to go to Paris in my life. Mm -hmm. So Brooke had to convince me. (laughs) And we went to Paris and I mean, you know, boy was I wrong, it's a gorgeous city, I loved it. And I thought, well since we're here, Paris would be a good place to have the, instead of Vienna, I'm not going to Vienna. Um, And so I have a specific memory of walking alongside the Seine and now they have these, these um, stations where they have like ping pong tables and games where you can stop and play. Yeah. Uh, and my son and my wife and my daughter were standing around a tetherball game they're playing. And I walked further up the river and I thought, hmm, could you kill somebody right here? And, yeah. 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 So, yeah. But so thank you,
0: Brooke, for Paris. I, I think we should, we should have a group of, of American novelists who have set portions of their novels in European cities discussing our travels. I mean, I, I, I actually went slightly the other way around. I have a section of the novel that I was working on at the time um, that was set in Prague. And, we were, and then we went to Prague in, uh, in November, and I'm standing on the street, and we were, we were there with friends, and finally my friend said, What are you doing? And I said... I'm trying to figure out where you would park a car around here <laughs> because I have a character who needs to park a car in this neighborhood. You know, and these are the these are the things that we do. We, you know, everybody else is looking at the beautiful architecture and stuff, and we're trying to go all right, where would you get a sandwich? <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> yes. <laughs> or pay phones. Of course, the Paris that you went to see was the Paris of 2000 and 14, something. Yeah. Um, but but you're writing about the Paris of, of 1946. And, I, and I, there was a great exhibit that I saw at the Grolier Club a couple of years ago about post-war Paris and how it was documented in, in the printing of the period. And you know, I was stunned by things like the, the absolute violent hatred and persecution of anybody who was perceived on any level to have been a collaborator. Yes. Um, How did you find a way to bring those specific difficult days of of 1946 Paris to life based on only having been able to view Paris in 2014?
1: Yes, yes. Well, um, books, uh, for uh, for sure. Um, You can, you know, YouTube has these wonderful, uh, you know, Videos of people driving or walking through streets—you mm-hmm. know—that's uh, able to, you're able to find that. But um, but yeah, what you were talking about the, that sense of of hatred of the collaborators, yeah. and that is definitely something that I think I punched up after knowing Andre and reading his mm-hmm. wife's uh, journal. Uh, because um, you know, there's a character in, in the play that you mentioned, based on that journal, that um, who you know who is a potentially a collaborator. This woman who's you know sleeping with a, a Nazi commandant. Yeah. Uh, and I have a character in, in Spitfire who is, is that as well. And, and you know, this is um, even though Livy's only half French, she she threatens her with that, uh,
0: a, the, you know, revealing her yeah. as a collaborator. Yeah. Um, it's quite it's quite a serious thing yeah. yeah um I mean I think you know for Americans, we have a certain idea of you know what life was like after the war you know the g i s came home, we had the g i bill we built lots of houses, we watched leave it to beaver you know and everything was all fine and dandy but in but in continental europe it was it was a very different kind of matter, Absolutely. Yeah. And, the second and, book- and even in a city like Paris that wasn't you know bombed to rubble but but still um, the emotional scars were were very very deep.
1: Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Uh, and um, the book takes place in London and Paris. Yeah, and so yeah. London, you have, you know, Levy walks by uh, buildings that are just you know completely demolished. Yeah, and, yeah. and then yeah, absolutely in Paris. Uh, <laughs> one thing that um, um, that I found, writing the second book, uh, where Livy uh, is sent to the United States uh, in researching, you know, the U.S. in 1947. Uh, and we were doing okay, you know, and then not, not, we're not talking about the, the same sort of rationing and, and that sort of thing as we had in, in Europe, of course. Yeah. Um, so, um,
0: so yeah, huge difference. Yeah, yeah. You you faced and and I think conquered the challenge that every historical novelist has to face, and that is how do we steep our narratives in that history without having the details of history just sort of overwhelm the story. Um, were, were there historical details you found out that you thought were just great, but that for one reason or other just weren't going to make it into the book?
1: Uh. Yeah, thank you. And uh, yes. Yeah. Um, yes, there, although there is one sentence in the book that I wish I could still take out because it feels exactly <laughs> like what you're describing, sort of, oh, oh, he read that. You had to put that in here somewhere. Um, it's just all about... Uh, uh, the story. I mean, it just you know, moving the characters forward, moving the story forward. Uh, the all those notes that I took about you know post-war Paris and post-war London that has to be, if you can use them, great. Um, but it just has to be sort of in the back of your mind to create the, 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 the picture of, of the place that you're writing yeah. without yeah. sort of going, oh, I have to put this in there. Yeah. Uh, there's one, one detail that the, my first agent said, no, that's unbelievable, I can't believe it. Uh, the SOE, and you can. there's a diagram that shows them how to do this, were trained to uh, find dead rats Mm-hmm. And put bombs in them. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, for, you know, like sort of. Seen, you know, it's on the spy museum in in Washington D.C. Oh, they it? have a whole exhibit about that. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. I wish I told him that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he said, "How about dogs?" I'm like, "Really? You're gonna put bombs on dogs?" No, Nobody they did will with, buy that. They did it with book. rats. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's one thing. I'm not. I'm not sure if that. I cannot remember if that made the final cut. But it was in there for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, but
0: I, I do think that's you know that's always this interesting thing. Robin Robin Cook said the other day. Um, it's our job to entertain the readers not to impress them. Yes. And I think there's a lot to be said for that that the reader doesn't need to know everything that we know. Um the that information can be valuable to us but not every detail has to has to show up on the page. That's true. So true. so you've alluded to this slightly but I'm going to I'm going to make you talk a little bit more about it. This book on the on the advertising says Livy Nash number 1. Yes. So uh tell us a little bit about what you're working on now, book number 2. Well, the second book is called
1: nightshade uh it takes place a year after uh the events of spitfire in mm-hmm. nineteen forty seven um and Livy um in order to uh find um a friend of hers from s o e that she- be- she believed was dead but apparently uh um may still be out there somewhere she uh has yeah. to come to America and to um Pretend to be a double agent mm-hmm. um, with a uh, rather fearsome um, uh, Russian uh, who she has a past with. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, and it, believe me. Uh, It is so much easier writing scenes that take place at Howard Johnson's uh, than the Dorchester
0: in London. But the Dorchester Uh, (laughs) is still there, Howard Johnson's. I mean, when was the last time any of us went to Howard Johnson's? When
1: I was a kid and we were traveling, Howard Johnson's was where we stayed. It is burned into my memory. I didn't go to the Howard Johnson's in 1947, but I'm not sure it changed.
0: Probably hadn't been that different, Yeah. yeah. Well, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same ten questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but uh, hopefully, they'll give our listeners some insight into you and your writing. Uh, I know you're a regular listener of the show, so you you might have your your answers all polished up. But but we'll see. We'll see how well prepared he is. Maybe I'll throw in a different (laughs) question just to throw it. Um, What word do you love to work into your writing?
1: Um, Apparently, I like to work the word smirk into my writing. That's
0: a good one. Yes. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Ooh, um, moist. Everybody says moist. It's so interesting.
1: I'll say ointment.
0: Uh, well, that's a similar sounding word, though, isn't it? Moist ointment. Yeah. Where's your favorite place to write?
1: Um, at my home, I have a little, a small office mm-hmm. with all my stuff.
0: Where could you never write?
1: Oh my gosh! I didn't prep this one. Uh, the bathroom.
0: <laughs> <laughs> to what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Oh,
1: impossible to find just one, Charlie. <laughs> um, semicolons and I really are not on speaking terms. Yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> What's the first book you remember reading?
1: Oh my gosh! Uh, probably something like Sea Spot Run. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe. Uh, reading, for, yeah, reading to myself, yeah. yeah. What, what are you reading now? Uh, right now, I am reading um, a book called The Way Some People Die by Ross MacDonald, the great mm-hmm. detective novelist.
0: What book would you like to have written?
1: Oh, wow. I would love to have written The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and
0: Clay." Oh, I love that novel. <laughs> um, what sort of book would you like to write but probably never will?
1: <laughs> um... I kind of feel like if I like it, I, I will write it. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't know that I will write something that is some sort of like Stephen King sort of tone, 150,000 words. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I imagine the editing of that would be nightmarish.
0: Yeah, yeah. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you?
1: Uh, I'd love to hear a reader tell me that, um, that Livy is such a breath of fresh air, and um, I thought I want to see what she does
0: next. Great. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Michael Huey, whose debut spy thriller is available wherever books are sold. And, of course, you can get signed copies right here at Bookmarks. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thank you. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider posting a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Inside the Writer Studio posts new shows on the 1st and 15th of every month. We've got some great guests planned for the coming months, including some authors appearing at the Bookmarks' movable feast in February. Until then, thanks for listening. And may you read with wonder and write with passion.